to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today. I have Grant here to speak with me about Titus 3. Welcome, Grant. Hello. We have a a really fascinating bit of scripture to talk about today, and uh, I think it's going to be really fun. But uh, why don't you first tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how faith plays a part in your life? So... My name is Grant, obviously. Um, I am the token Twitter Alaskan in this kind of corner of the Twitter sphere. And I do a podcast with my friends Jeremy and Anne-Marie called Contra Gentiles. Um, I think we've only been doing this like September, but it's like a... So do you know um, much about Thomas Aquinas and his work? Not as much as I should. Um, so he kind of, I guess, I don't want to say his two most significant works, but I would probably his most widely known works are the Summa Theologica, which is essentially like a theological handbook for people, for like people learning, um, different like classical Christian theological concepts. Um, it was, it was used in like, um, education of children and young adults for, several hundred years the the catholic church still uses it still references it it's like the the catechism is based a lot on summa theologica or like kind of vice versa um and then there he did the summa contra gentiles which is the is like a it it translates essentially like arguments against the gentiles work against the gentiles (laughs) and it was essentially a defense of the kind of christian faith at the time um because i believe there was there were the more and more heresies kept springing up essentially out of thin air. Um, and he, he just wrote this long thing about how this is why the Catholic church nor the Catholic doctrine is the way it is. And this is why we can't accept heretics that, you know, things like that. And like Jeremy, we were like, I wanted to do a Latin name for the, the podcast. Mm-hmm. And he suggested contra gentiles, which just means against the Gentiles, which I think is really funny because <laughs> calling people we disagree with Gentiles is inherently comedic to me. But it's also <laughs> like we talk about kind of cl- like scholastic Catholic metaphysical concepts pretty frequently, like truth, the good, evil, etc. And like kind of classical definitions of those. Mm-hmm. And then I also do um, the Percent 100 podcast with my friend Michael that we started doing recently. And that's just wackier and not necessarily explicable. Bullshitting while he drives, essentially. <laughs> that's an interesting idea for a show. <laughs> anyway, do we get into this? Sure. Yeah, let's um, let's dive in. Um, the... Uh, the introduction in the voice translation of the Bible, it does a nice kind of neat little paragraph on um, some context for Paul's letter to Titus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit of this. We can talk a little bit about the context, and then we'll dive into the scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, Titus was a young co-worker with Paul, a part of the emissary's mission team, as he planted churches in Asia Minor and Greece. 
because of his affection for and trust in Titus, whom Paul described as his dear son birthed through our shared faith, Paul often delegated to Titus sensitive and difficult situations. One such situation was in Crete, an island in the Mediterranean with a reputation for dishonesty and thievery that was a haven for pirates. We can infer from this letter that the church on Crete was in its infancy and needed to be taught the basics about church leadership and foundational doctrine. The primary message of this letter is that good works come from sound doctrine, the shared faith of believers, and the resulting character that reflects a life serving God. In spite of the serious nature of the subject matter and the Cretans' situation, Paul managed to convey his teachings on leadership, sound teaching, and church order in a warm conversational style. Now, I don't quite agree that this is entirely warm and conversational, um, but it is, it's very Paul-like, this letter. Yes. And maybe that's what they mean. Like, it's just kind of how he operated. It's <laughs> so typical Paul. <laughs> um, yeah, he, uh, he lays out a lot of uh, descriptive sort of rules for living and rules for building a church. And the rules that he is um, trying to convey to Titus so that he can convey them to the churches in Crete are specific to the situation that was happening there because the people of Crete had this reputation of being dishonest, of being um, lecherous, of being um, overindulgent. And uh, as a result, the specific criticisms or the specific advice that Paul is giving relates to those things. At least that's how I saw it. Is that how you read it? Uh, yes. I mean, you do have to take it and you have to take the context. You have to consider that. But it's, yes, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to, I'm going to let that. Feel free to disagree bit. with me. I really no, don't. No, I do. I, 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 that is obviously a feature of it that, that yes it is addressed to a specific person at a specific time in a specific place um but it doesn't seem like too hyper specific to not be applicable elsewhere it's almost like a if you were to take a little section of proverbs and like apply it to a specific situation if that makes sense yeah well and i think that the fact that it was included in the canonical bible yeah um not just because of its like veracity, but because it was like this is a universal teaching that is useful for us. Yes, yeah. Um, it's it's it's. I guess it's essentially displaying the. I keep saying the word applicable. The the relevance of the gospel to different specific situations and contexts. That's kind of how I read the middle of the, of the New Testament. The kind of the shorter letters and things. Yeah, because I mean, like um, the Romans had a very specific uh, had a very specific set of issues that they too uh, dealt with. Yes, and um, boy, does that book not cover pretty much everything in our lives? And there's a reason why it's the <laughs> yes. most often quoted and used, you know, as preached on book in the Bible is because not only because it's so heavy in doctrine and and, and pastors really love doctrine, but because um, because it is so universally applicable. Um, so Paul gets in some jabs in this book and we won't, we don't have to necessarily pick each one of them apart. I I think honestly, we could have done the whole book for this episode Mm -hmm. and, um, and maybe not been able to dig as deep into the particular sections, but 
for clarification, when you hear the word Cretan in this sense, it is not the word Cretan as the word that we know of today in the English language. Um, it's actually not even from the same root word. Uh, the word Cretan uh, in you know, with respect to someone from Crete, was actually used at um, at the time in Greece as an insult uh, for someone who was dishonest, who um, took advantage, who um, was just generally kind of um, shady or a liar or kind of um, just basically someone that you couldn't trust. And a Cretan today, I think, has a much different connotation, but it is still used in a, in a negative context. So, yeah, it's, but it's a totally different root word, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that particular um, word itself carried weight even in the time that Paul was writing this letter. Um, he knew that, because he was a very worldly uh, worldly guy, uh, he knew all, he traveled all around, he knew all about the different societies that these Christian churches were, um, were being born into. And he, you know, he he makes a few references to things like a famous poet from Crete. Um, he makes a reference to, at one point, the God who doesn't lie. And the God who doesn't lie is, is sort of this jab at Zeus, because people from Crete <laughs> believe that Zeus was born on Crete. And Zeus was known for being underhanded and, um, and, and lying to people and getting one over on people and things like that. And so mm-hmm. um, Paul makes these little kind of jabs. At, at the people of Crete and their beliefs while he's trying to kind of guide them in the right direction, which I thought was very funny. Yeah. I'm look, I'm just reading it over again. <laughs> How many times have you read say the, you've read I, A lot. <laughs> I've read the first chapter a lot. The third, so the first and second, so the first chapter of Titus, so the first section of the letter is essentially instructing Titus as to how he should behave and how a good, a a church leader behaves. Mm -hmm. Then the second section, the second chapter is how he is to instruct other people to behave. And then the third is how a church is to operate in the context of say a political system or a culture uh, just kind of in like broader society. And that was kind of what I found the most interesting and, because I don't okay. know if you, 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 the, the most uh, recent thing I recorded with Jeremy, I sp- like literally as you, we were talking about how the Catholic church operates in the context of like, uh, like contemporary political systems and things like that. You sent me a message on Twitter like, hey, do you want to talk about Titus 3? And while we were recording, I looked it up and I was like, this is exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> I heard the bit, uh, the beginning of that episode, and I, it, it, like you were literally talking about what this, yeah, what this passage is talking about. And I was like, wow, synchronicities. This has been a recurring theme on my show is the all of these synchronicities that exist. Um, sometimes you open the Bible, you find something that resonates with you, and then all of a sudden everything in your life is clicking along with that. And other times the things in your life that click along will guide you towards something in the Bible. And it's like, you have to listen to this because most of us don't get to have full on, uh, conversations with God in the way that a lot of the prophets and apostles got to do in their time. Mm-hmm. But, um, we, can listen to the still soft voice of God when God is saying, um, Hey, let, let me nudge you this way. 
um, stop, stop with the Netflix for a second, open this book, (laughs) 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 which I mean, I'm on record for not being anti-technology, but I do think that all of us would probably do well to read, read the Bible more, even if it's just, even if it's just kind of like idly flipping through and looking for something that, that, that rings true in your heart. Yeah, I like, like, I, like I said earlier, well, I didn't say it earlier. I always tell people like, if you're going to read one book, read Proverbs. Oh yeah. Um, that's interesting. Because it distills everything in the book to a very readable kind of almost just like a poem. And it's, it's almost like the, it's like a summary of everything. And like, if you're only going to read one, read Proverbs, but, um, Proverbs is. So like, that's what I mean. It's like, if somebody's like, Oh, I want to read something in the Bible. Just like, I, I always say, Proverbs is kind yeah. of my go-to. Don't start with Titus. No. Well, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little obscure. It is. It is. It's um. It's not bad though. This is something that I think a lot of these short letters kind of get mm-hmm. looked over um, in the grand scheme of people's um, interpretations of the Bible. But some of the most powerful lessons, like I said, there's a reason why these things wound up staying in this book and staying with us for this long is because these some of the most powerful lessons are just snuck into these things that seem so obscure. And so like, why do I, why am I reading this? Like what, what is, what is my, you know, why am I being drawn to this? And I think um, three specifically chapter three is speaking to a, a, a very present issue. Uh, one that everyone from any walk of life or political um, space on the political spectrum or um, identity of any kind can in some way um, say that they have struggled with this at some point in in the last year or two or, mm-hmm. um, you know, or five or 10. But I think for most of us, the last year or two, because it's been such a tumultuous time, I think, for, for most people. Yeah. So specifically talk about why you think it's applicable. Well, maybe we should start reading it first. Okay. And then let's dig in. And I'm going to, um, I made a mention on the last show of maybe switching to the NIV. And I'm going to read this um, sort of side by side, ESV and NIV. Okay. I, I liked the way that it was written out in the NIV a bit more. So the uh, header in um, chapter three says, saved in order to do good. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Mm. So that seems impossible, right? Impossible? Yeah, it seems impossible. How, how, could I, how could I be gentle to everyone? How could I slander no one? I'm a human being. Um, there's not a single day where I don't want to hurl curse words at, at, at someone. Um, and that yeah, may be my it's own the, thing. It's the, it's the not doing it. It's the it's the tempering your your instincts to to not to not comport yourself in that manner towards other people. At least, so that's something I find extremely interesting about like classical the classical theological understanding of the mind is that thoughts are not actualized reality, and it is your job to temper the manifestation of your thoughts. Well, I think that self-control is yes. That's like, exactly what it yeah, is. It's yeah, it's paramount. Is is paramount in like understanding that 
in the, in, you know, even in the Sermon on the Mount where, um, Jesus is saying that like lust isn't, you know, the sin of, uh, of adultery isn't simply, uh, sleeping with someone that isn't your spouse. Like it is lust that's in your heart. So mm-hmm. change your heart because at the very least you need to be able to control what you're, what you're physically doing. And obviously Jesus wants us, us to change ourselves completely from within, but mm-hmm. he sees that the reality of it is that we are going to struggle with these things, that we are going to um, have feelings that we want to act on. So um, in, in practical application, I think you see this in Paul's letters a lot. Mm-hmm. He's acknowledging that we are broken and that we need to control these desires or control these, um, these this, the, you know, this wanting to lash out and to, um, to hurt people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing I find interesting about those first couple of verses that I think is especially per- applicable for, for not just Christian people, uh, not just believers now, but um, maybe, I, I don't know if you'd say contrarians in general is the... the the command to subject yourself to authority, I find very interesting because it's difficult to walk the line between respecting authority and like almost subjugating yourself to a false authority. So this is exactly where I think that this particular um, passage hits a nerve for a lot of people right now, Mm -hmm. because um, being, uh, being, oppressed or being um, being hurt by a governing body in some mm-hmm. way is something that Christians are acutely familiar with. Yep. Uh, Christians should know that no government is going to inherently take care of them. Even the governments that say that they're Christians themselves are usually doing something atrocious. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually doing something that is um, damaging. And, um, and so like the fact that Paul is specifically saying here that you have to be obedient to governments, um, and, and it kind of sounds like no matter what you have to be obedient to them, sounds like the familiar call, like in Romans eight, where Paul says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That suffering is in our DNA as Christians, that it's always going to be part of our existence to suffer. That's so, the DNA of human beings in general. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's very true. Um, and, uh, and so, like, the call is to recognize that these authorities may be hostile to you, but you still have to be obedient to them. How did that feel to you because they're my first feeling was like what no way so and i guess this applies to a lot of scripture in in this context because it's not the only time that um subservience to a governing body is expected of people in the bible like that's kind of a a theme is that christianity or or christian theology is a recognition of the structure of being itself. Like that God is the act of being God is that, which that being on which all things that exist are predicated. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like this is anti-revolutionary, which because especially for Americans, we don't, 
we operate in a very revolutionary kind of ideological framework. Like we are used to, so we would imagine that say, like if, if a, if a contemporary American Paul were to write something to Titus, it might be a bit more, um, I guess the word is revolutionary. Like he might, you know, wage war on, on, on the Cretans. Um, <laughs> he'd be, he, it's, it's, it's a difficult, what was your question again? Sorry. I'm like, I have oh, like it was, five it was, trains of thought going. Well, my, like I, you know, I was just saying that like my initial reaction to that first couple of verses yeah. was how, how could we do this? And this is coming from someone that has witnessed, uh, you know, in Portland where I live, um, protest after protest after um, violent clashes between these these warring political groups in in the city, um, you know, uh, buildings being t- t- torn to shreds and um, and so like my initial thought was like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so this is so something interesting that it's so so when someone's protesting, when a group of people are protesting, like in Portland, like my sister was going to um, is it PCC in. Rock Creek or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, she was stuck on the highway in in Portland when people were smashing cars during the 2016 election. Um, and those people are not looking to convince anyone of anything. They're looking to control people. The I think what Paul is, what what much of biblical narrative implies is that you are. It is not your job to control people. It is to convince them of something. It doesn't matter if you have political agency in their lives. It, it, you're, you're, you're there to be an example of something. You're not there to influence someone's, I don't know what the word would be. You're the control, I guess you're not, you're not, you're not taking control of their political structures and their customs and things. You are just there to be an example of a, of the, of the worldview of which they should be convinced. If that makes sense. I think like you're you're not going to convince anybody of anything by protesting and smashing things and like killing all the Cretans off because they're non-believers. Like, <laughs> well, I think that the um, the bit of scripture that gets used to justify um, political action, direct action like this, um, or or some people would say political violence, or however you want to word it, yeah. is um, Jesus in the temple flipping the flipping the merchants' tables over and things like that. But consistently, um, Jesus is given agency to rebel, uh, even though he doesn't really want to, because he, he is a humble and he wants to make himself more and more humble, but consistently the call for humans, people who aren't part of the triune God, people who are just, um, called to be followers of Jesus and, and to worship God, um, are, May, are, are told to be smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, John the Baptist, so who is widely looked at as one of mm-hmm. the, the most important people in the Bible uh, in Jesus's um, time, was you know he must increase and I must decrease, and that's like that's really why I think what Paul is saying here is that like, look, your position on Earth is less important than your eternal soul. Yeah, it's like I I, I actually really like that you brought that up because I have heard people make the argument of like, Oh, we're protesting because Jesus flipped tables in the temple. And it's like, well, are you Christ? Are you, (laughs) are you perfectly man and fully God? Are you like the, it's not like we can't, we are not Christ. I think that there's especially increasingly, there is a, 
a projection of the self onto Christ that I don't necessarily think is appropriate in like like contemporary theology. Like you, you're not like Christ was a is a significant is like the most significant figure sent by God to bear the sin of the entire like everyone who's ever lived and anyone who ever will live you're not you don't you don't get to go flip tables like well and furthermore that, like the end result of Jesus his life and ministry was yeah. him being tortured and killed yes um so <laughs> yeah that's the thing is if you're willing if you if you accept that you'll be tortured and killed maybe but like I don't I just I don't I don't necessarily think that. So that's that's that is the kind of the the main point I was trying to make is that like Christ was perfect in that he was fully God. He was man fully realized and perfect. So there was not a point at which he would have flipped tables that need not be flipped. Like yes, you can you can you can riot and overthrow a government and that might be the right decision, but that does not necessarily mean that it was the perfect one. If that makes sense. I just, I don't, I, I think that, yeah, I think I should clarify here because I also don't want to, don't want to come off as saying that like, Oh, well then no one should ever be upset about anything that happens exactly. with any yes, government yes. ever. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. People are already being tortured and killed. So that's not like, look, I understand. And, and I, um, I, I do think that we, have to balance, I think, in, to some extent in our lives, like we are, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you need to use the teachings of the Bible and your your prayer to try to suss out the best way that you can live in a way that glorifies God on earth. And mm-hmm. what you do is not for me to judge necessarily. What I'm trying to do is trying to pull apart in this specific case What's the context here? What is the um, what are the ramifications of what Paul is really saying here? Because there's a time, and I was gonna, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about this little passage in the Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich it's Bonhoeffer. Like Bonhoeffer. Yeah, yeah. So this is someone who was a Christian in Germany uh, during the rise of Nazism and uh, was always and forever preaching pacifism, and um, wound up being put into a concentration camp and killed. Uh, someone who saw endless uh, injustice, someone who saw endless uh, torture and suffering and pain and, and a country that was being, um, or, or really a world at the time, that was being ripped apart. And he still said in, his, in, in the section of the book, um, The Visible Community, he said, let, uh, therefore, let every soul be in subjection to the higher powers uh, from Romans 13. One, the Christian must not be drawn to the bearers of high office. His calling is to stay below. The higher powers are over him and he must remain under them. The world exercises dominion. The world exercises dominion. The Christian serves. And thus he shares the earthly lot of his Lord who became a servant. <sighs> it's challenging. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's really challenging. It's... Um, yeah, it's almost a, it's a, it's a, a call to temper the ego. Humility. I mean, I guess really that's the ult- that's the ultimate call of of Christianity in general is just to, um, to temper your, temper your ego. Um, <laughs> stop making stop making yourself God. You're not God. You're not God. 
you could just read this as being like, you can just be, be polite to people. Don't, <laughs> don't be mean. Don't be mean to people. Like, uh, don't slander anybody. I like the way that, um, the ESV says, um, speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Um, mm-hmm. that's, um, that I guess you could, that could be your takeaway if you really want it to be. But I think the ramifications of what Paul is saying is a lot deeper than that. You know, and, so this is an interesting contrast to me. Um, I want to stay in three for the most part, but there was kind of a contrasting, I think it was in the first chapter. Where is it? Are you talking about um, one thirteen? I think so. Yes. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I'm going between different translations and they're all like the, the formatting is different on all of them. So like this one's a double <laughs> column. This one's a single, this one's the other. Go um, ahead and read that. Yeah. I have the ESV is going to be closest to what you have. Um, it's so the first, so we actually, it's, it's so 12 is one of, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And it's almost as if three is a call to kind of a, a pacifism in public life. But earlier it says, especially that line rebuke them sharply is like, that's not necessarily, especially now the way we, the way we handle correcting other people when their ideas are wrong and things like that. It's, Rebuking them sharply does not seem kind. No. Yeah, it's it's quite the opposite, I feel like. is, And and it should be noted that this is the section where Paul is talking to Titus on how to deal with these people versus three, which is um, basically like me- messages, lessons that Titus should be relaying to people. Mm-hmm. So he's saying to Titus, you could rebuke them and you could challenge them and you could try to correct them. But in three, he's saying, you Cretans, you need to be subservient and you need to obey and you need to not be quarrelsome. Yeah, because and, rebuking someone so in in the context of the like love, to love someone being to will the good to someone, rebuking someone sharply is an act of love um, you, because you are leaving no room for doubt as to what is true. You are you are sharply saying, speaking truth to them when they're living in untruth. So the, it's not because I do I do I I, pro, I possibly do that too much in my day. I'm like constantly <laughs> quote unquote rebuking people sharply all the time. Um, but it's essentially if if you if you must and it comes to it, you you need to speak truth as forcefully and sharply and lovingly as possible. Um, but at the same time, that's not you. You don't, you are not the truth. If you know what I mean? Like you didn't think of it. You did. It's not your truth. So yeah, there's, there's two sides to this, right? Because a lot of Christians take this as a call to, say what they feel because they're Christians, they, they know better. 
And so they should be calling out these things in the world that they see as wrong or sinful. And then on the, on the flip side of it, non-believers will always challenge Christians and say, well, judge not lest ye be judged. And that's not really what that line means either, because what they're saying (laughs) is that God's judgment is, uh, is all knowing, um, not that we should never, uh, not that we should never see things that are wrong and say something about them, but that like, so that's another thing is that our definition of the word, like of the, of, of judgment has changed. Yeah. Judgment used to refer to like judgment by God, judgment by a court, judgment by some kind of, or judgment against some standard that a judge to judge some, to, to observe something incorrect and correct it or attempt to facilitate the correction of it to facilitate the, the bringing back to the good of something in wrong or whatever. That's not, that's not really judging in the same way. You're not, it's not judging as God judges. It's not, again, in, in, I, English is a very bad word, uh, language <laughs> for um, philosophy slash theology because it's very descriptive, but it's not technical. It's not very technically sound. Um, and I find when I'm having conversations like that, people will say things like, like they won't have a coherent um, concept of the good or like what it means to to be good or evil or whatever. Like, it's just like, so I end up having these little conversations about like, what does it mean to rebuke? What does it mean to like, uh, so like Bible studies for me take like, it'll take like eight hours <laughs> like going over every single word. Yeah. Building um, coherent theological arguments with English. Um, not that I speak any other languages fluently, but with English to me feels sometimes like you're building a sandcastle because um, One, well, yes, that's it can, good, that's a good it can way appear of... perfectly formed, but the second you start to, to um, put any pressure on it, it crumbles. Yes, and Sandcastle <laughs> is a perfect example of the way in which English is poetic but not technical. Yes. We're very, very good at drawing metaphors, but we're not – like English <laughs> is not good for – that's, that's literally why Latin mass is still conducted at Catholic in cathedrals. It's because Latin is so technical. Mm-hmm. Um. But anyway, I don't want to get into that. That's, that's, I'll end up talking about language for the entire time. But um, Yeah, we don't have eight hours today, actually. So no, no, no. <laughs> So we've only read two verses. Should we, we read I, should I read the next? Should I, <laughs> should um, I read the next part? Uh, I guess just quick clarification on what I said about Christians feeling like they need to rebuke people. Um, that What I said there was not to say that Christians shouldn't feel... Um, when someone that they love or someone in their life or someone in their church is um, backsliding or falling away or um, or doing something that we know is wrong uh, or not glorifying God, I think that that's okay to say something about what it doesn't mean is that your judgment, judgment, um, moral judgment, 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 not not God's judgment, but your judgment is not um, all-knowing. So in issues of uh, social, moral um, things uh, in communities that have nothing to do with you, uh, you may not always be the best judge of what um, what is right or wrong there. That's the importance of community. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, go ahead and read. Um, and I will I will say, I'll, we're gonna, again, I'm going to reference something you said. Um, you said that Christians feel like they're right, they're correct. And I, you were, you were contrasting Christians who essentially 
have big heads with people with like people we're getting rebuking them by saying like, Oh, judge not blah, 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 blah. That whole thing. Yeah. I, I would say that yes, Christians do know better. <laughs> I don't want to give the impression. Like I think everybody's equally correct. But anyway, um, 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 um. <laughs> so what are we on? We're on three. Uh, yes. Verse we're three. on three. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, do you want NIV NIV? Sure. Okay. At one time we too are, yeah, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God, Savior appeared, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. We could pause there because I think yeah. that that's really, really, um, this is where it turns from a necessary, like a moral direction to a beautiful statement about the renewing, um, cleansing, uh, rebirthing power of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was so like, I mean, this is amazing grace, right? I once was yes. lost, but now I'm found. Um, it is, uh, I know, and, and Paul is saying this, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. We knew um, we know that in, in the past, we, we weren't right either. So listen, Titus, we can and will correct ourselves. We can and will live with the kindness and love of God, our Savior. Um, that is what the gospel can do for us, is to transform us, um, which I just thought was incredibly beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's essentially... It's almost like a statement like treat these people as if they're broken with the same kindness you would you would wish to be treated in your own brokenness. And the salvation that we receive through through God or through Jesus is not because of things that we're doing which are good. We do them because they are good. Yes. Um, yes. They're not because we think God's that will. exactly not because we think that they will save us but because of the mercy of God because of the grace of God we can be saved not because yeah, we, there is no salvation in its absence exactly so we can do good and we should do well or we should do good we would do well to do good yes. um, <laughs> but uh, that ultimately is not going to be our salvation our salvation will come from God Um which is confusing it, 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 sometimes. It only can come from God. Yeah, with the work, the works versus kind of faith salvation conversation has always been a little puzzling to me. It's extremely, um, that is a much newer phenomenon um, than most people realize. It was never, it was, it was not a topic of discussion before say the Protestant Reformation or the Council of Trent or anything like it wasn't, there were heresies that kind of sprang up kind of one after the other, but like the, it was never church doctrine to, it was, it's obviously both. Your salvation is only through the gift of Christ's sacrifice, but also it is your responsibility to do good where, whenever and wherever you can. And it's, it's not that the work saves you, but it's necessary. That's a, it's an interesting balance, right? Because if you lean too far one direction or the other, you can slip significantly. Uh, if your only concern is doing these good works, 
then are you maintaining the level of faith and connection to the spirit that you need to on the flip side of it? If, if you think, uh, I have a, an immaculate connection with God. I am, I'm meditating. I'm praying all the time. We have these amazing conversations. I'm having these spiritual experiences. So outside of that, I'm going to go get fucked up on drugs. I'm going to go. Yeah, do it's, an inherent, it's, an in, it's an inherently nihilistic, um, view because that, of my faith, then mm-hmm. I can do whatever I want, which is like a yeah, different that's danger. Nihilistic. Yeah. That's um, a dangerous mindset too. And then the idea that you, through your, you get in, you are allowed into heaven based on like some kind of points you accumulated based on the things you did and didn't do is extremely like selfish. It, it places a lot of agency on the self that I, the self doesn't have. Well, and it creates this bizarre point system in our heads too. Like, yes. uh, I, Oh, well, I got drunk last Friday and uh, I feel really bad about that, but I like, I confessed and then, um, I went and I volunteered and, um, and I think I'm level now. So like I can, <laughs> you know, I can go have sex with someone I don't know. So rinse, wash, repeat, or, or wash, rinse, repeat, whatever. It becomes, yeah, it becomes kind of a dangerous little, like, am, am I, am I just like, am I doing tallies on a chalkboard or how? I think I would say that yes, people work, people who are extremely concerned with their work, which, which like contemporary secularism is a work-based faith essentially. So yes, they are all keeping points in their head i think we can view that pretty obviously yeah there's a cultural scoreboard i mean that's that's obvious but that's a secular thing too i'm I'm less concerned with what points and whatnot all right should i continue yes he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the holy spirit who he poured out on us generously through jesus christ our savior so that having been justified by his grace we might become there we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life this is kind of what I mentioned um, in that passage from Romans 8. Um, we might become, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Um, that we might because becoming an heir is not so simple as just saying, I believe in God. I um, believe in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made, uh, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he died and was resurrected. Um, it's not simply saying this, um, we must suffer. We must experience the kind of, um, the kind of pain that Jesus experienced on earth in some way or another in order to be an heir to that kingdom. At least that's how I read it. Yeah. I know we, um, I'll have to send you a link, but Jeremy and Marie and I had a very long conversation about the nature of suffering like a month ago, maybe. And that's been very, um, I've been stewing on it quite a lot. I'm rereading this really quick. The thing that I, one of the most beautiful, maybe bittersweet things about the way both that this is written and the idea of hope in a Christian context is that the second, what more can you do than hope that you'll inherit the kingdom of God? Like at what there, there is not a point when you transition from hope to certainty. The second, if you do transition, if you are certain you are going, you are, I don't know what the words I want to use. I'm trying to, 
I'm trying to be uh, theologically sound in the words I'm using. <laughs> I've committed it heresies is, on this show I already. Know, you don't have yeah, to worry. You're about. good. You're good. I'm trying not to, um, but English makes that hard. Um, it's annoying that like just the language itself makes a barrier. But um, it's almost you. You cannot be certain because the moment you are certain that you will be granted eternal life in Christ is the moment that you make yourself God. In in saying that you will with certainty. Yes. So that's yeah. why they that's why they were they always they're all saying hope. We might. We, might you know, like, like it's always it's never certain because you cannot know because to know something like that is to essentially declare yourself God. Well I think like um, in the way that prayer makes us feel closer to God and can be like an ecstatic expression of, of faith and connection, um, we should feel that same way about suffering for Jesus um, if, if and when, and most of us in America, I don't think really ever experience in an acute way uh, suffering because of being a Christian. But mm-hmm. um, that should be something that we revel in um, if it's something that you experience, because that is something that will bring you closer to God. But it doesn't guarantee anything, certainly. No, because it's not guaranteed. Yeah. It's a um, gift. The, uh, I, I want to rewind a little bit to, to the ESV for uh, verse 4, because they use this phrase in the ESV a lot. Uh, it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness. Loving kindness is like one word in the ESV. They use this a lot, like steadfast love, I guess. But... I see that interchangeably in certain. So, what did they say in the New King James? Um, I, mean, I, got, I have it right here in front yeah, of me. Yeah, I was going to say, I said four. Okay. Oh, it's right here. Yeah, verse four. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. So that's closer to the NIV. Um, just for just for giggles. Uh, I think I that's would, almost exactly the same. There's that toward man is the only significant. Anyway. In just just to. Um, for for a left field take uh, in the voice, it says then this. But then something happened. God, our Savior, and His overpowering love and kindness for humankind entered our world. Isn't the voice kind of a hippie translation? When did that come out? Uh, this one, I believe, was like 2012 or something like that. Let me look. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, that, it's that. Recent. I think you're thinking of the message, and that was a little bit earlier. But that's actually, I mean, um, okay, okay, fairly as far as. Um, oh, it is so much more. I, yeah, I'm thinking of something else. This it's much maligned, but yeah, there was there's the message translation is is fairly well researched. It 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 says things a lot differently than I think a lot of people want to want to read them sometimes. And oh, I'm just I'm just scrolling down the amplified. Uh, that one's really interesting. If anyone's checked that out, um, uh, get the Bible app if you don't have it yet. Folks, if seriously, I really can't stress it's, it's, this enough. <laughs> again, you can't hate technology because this exists. <laughs> this like, is technology one, isn't all bad. At the very least, you can have a Bible app where you can read. Uh, if you get to a, a puzzling, like Titus, if you get to a puzzling um, portion of Scripture, something that doesn't really swap seem to make any sense, yeah, you can check out. You know, what is the contemporary? The contemporary English is the funniest one to me because it is. Oh, it sounds like oh it's my being god! There's a, there was a like Bible a, store like down the street years ago when my sister and I were kids, and she found this um, like young girls Bible, and it was tra- it was translated into like Valley Girl English. <laughs> oh no! I'll have to find, I have to buy a copy of it online somewhere. It was so funny. <laughs> And then uh, Jesus incredible. like totally saved our lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, I should do like a series of the show just specifically on 
um, hilarious, um, very time sensitive Bible translations like the Extreme Teen Bible and the Outdoorsman, um, the Outdoorsman Bible, and, and but you have to like pick that. one passage that's like kind of well known and compare them all. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, this awesome. one is yeah, this one's camo. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm gonna keep reading. Yeah, or do you, you can read. You were at eight. You read. were at eight. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so this is referring to what he says um, between four and seven. Paul says this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. And we should pause there again. So legalism is like a dirty word in Christianity, right? Because it implies this kind of like works-based, rules-based view of faith. Um, And that's what Paul is saying here, don't. For someone that wrote so much doctrine— for somebody that created so many very specific rules, mm-hmm. um, or at least moved them from the Old Testament into the New Testament, um, saying to avoid uh, quarrels about the law seems odd. But I think he's probably referring to secular law there, right? Like law, government. I think law he's talking about that. practical law, in regardless of context, um, because I wouldn't. Scripture is law in a sense, but it is not a, it's, it's a moral and ethical law. It's not literally a legal system. Yeah. People have tried. Yeah. People have tried to make legal systems based on it and it's, it's a disaster. I think. Yes. Because it's, that's (laughs) not the point. It's not a legal, it's not legal praxis. It's moral and ethical and I don't mean I, when people say it's like a moral narrative that it, it, it can it can sound reductionist. I I mean I, I essentially mean it expresses the morality inherent in the structure of being. Because um, I definitely take the take the view that mor- morality isn't just like a subjective thing that it, like it's not just a thing that evolved with humans. It's like a it's it refers to a feature of being. So it's not talking about. That's another reason. I don't know exactly how it would be said in the Latin, but um, it's it's not talking about law in the way that scripture is law. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's almost like what he's saying is, because this, I think, in the context of the people of Crete, mm-hmm. what, were that these Jewish um, traditionalists were trying to kind of like wrestle back control from um, the the Christian apostles that were tr- building these home churches, they were trying to kind of push the um, the um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy um, laws, uh, the the laws of the Torah, onto mm-hmm. these Christian churches after it had been explicitly said that look, you don't need to be circumcised to be welcomed into the family of of God anymore. That's just not something that's required. And, Christ, and Christ. Keep, died. Yeah. You don't have to do that anymore. Exactly. So folks Christ that, died. You don't have to give blood offerings anymore. It, exactly. So, but there were people at that time that were still trying to kind of push this old law narrative. And maybe that 
might be more of what Paul's talking about here. Like, look, there are going to be people who say, but wait a second, I thought we were supposed to spread um, lamb's blood on the door every um, every Passover. Uh, well, look, we we did away with the, the animal sacrifices. We don't need to do that anymore. Um, but the next verse, which says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time, after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. That, I think, kind of wraps it all up in a nice little bow. It says, these are the people that are going to try to split your church apart over rules that have already been done away with, laws that have already been set aside in the name of building a church that is stronger and larger and more inclusive and more welcoming um, and more in tune with how God really is. Um, 10 and 11 are extremely different in New King James. Really? In a way that I really like New King James. <laughs> what do they lot. say? What do they say? So it says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That I think is more like um, the ESV. Is it? Mm-hmm. But that's... That's interesting. So how do you take that then as as far as the different verbiage there? Or do you just like the way it sounds more? It, I just think that it's more succinct. I'm reading the ESV also. I have like, I literally, I have two Bibles open on my lap and then my phone. So I have all of them present in front of me all the time. Yeah. ESV is as for a person who sets, stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. It's almost as if, the the tent the the New King James is just much more the rejected divisive man after the first and second admonition. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's it's almost assuming that you know what it means to be a device like divisive. <laughs> I don't I don't know. It's is this like Jesus saying like away from me I never knew you like uh, at a yeah. certain point I'm gonna. It's essentially I'm, saying there are people who will reject this. Yeah, and and there will be people who will even try to stay with you and continue to challenge you and and if after a couple of times of you saying look you don't you're off base here and if they're not listening anymore then just get get rid of them essentially like yes. and they're that's not again it's, the especially anymore. for contemporary christians that is a very difficult thing to do the the well, way yeah. churches become more and more and more charismatic over time it's just like they're not rejecting anyone and theological frameworks are inherently rejecting of other theological frameworks. And again, it's the the rebuking sharply, depending on how they would, how they um, respond to your sharp rebuke. You kind of have to judge whether or not they're kind of one with the cause, I guess you could say. That's interesting. I I mean, I think that like most churches that are saying like, we accept everyone, we welcome everyone is based on like identity. And, and um, in the past, it's been like exclusionary and like you're, well, you're gay, so you can't be part of the the church or you're, um, uh, you're trans, you can't be part of the church. It's identity-based stuff. But there are people, I think, especially in these days, that was more of an acute issue of people saying, no, I read the I read the Torah. I know the Torah. This is not exactly. what goes yes. on in the Torah. Yes. There's not yes. a lot of people that 100%. do that at churches anymore. I don't think. Yes. Maybe yes. maybe I'm this, wrong, but yes, no. I would I would say yes. True. It's not necessarily the same. But um, there is a line issue. too. I mean, I feel like there are things that are sinful, and and it's clear that there are things that are sinful. So, um, 
we want to welcome sinners in an effort to help them change change themselves, right? But to they also have lives. to they also have to forego their sin at some point. Yeah. You That's got to be the hardest thing about ministry and in, in evangelizing yes. in general is is welcoming people in and then understanding that at a certain point, mm-hmm. if it's not that's taking... A, that's a very um, interesting, or what I think is interesting, it's about me, um, an interesting feature of my own, like, sexual, uh, I, I don't want to say identity, because I don't necessarily think that that's necessarily a phrase with meaning, but... um. I don't view my homosexual behavior as good inherently. Um, and I, I understand that if I really, really wanted to kind of like uh, commit myself to God in like the most serious way, I would have to forego it because it is not, it's, it's, but when, when you say that I'm not condemning people who do it, no, no, of course not. I'm literally living with my boyfriend. Like it's not, that's not something I'm, <laughs> I'm giving up right now. You know, like I'm not, but at the same time, it's like, I understand that it's like ontologically not good. And it would be very, very difficult to convince contemporary. So that's the, so the, the dichotomy of the, there's the two kinds of evangelicals, the like Methodist ultra charismatic Everybody can show like, like literally will, will, I don't know if they baptize people or whatever, but they'll, they allow anyone to practice. And then there's the like hardcore Southern Baptists where like everybody's going to hell, like (laughs) brim, like, you know, brimfire and brimstone, like that there's two of those. It's like you actually, you, you, you have to exist in a space between them because you have to be, you have to have mercy on people and understand that everyone is broken, but also hold them to standards. Absolutely. And I think because that there in- is an inherent sacrifice in committing yourself to Christ. It's you have to be giving something up. Like there's something you're doing that isn't enough. That's, I mean, that's interesting. I, I, ultimately, I think no one should be viewing their sexual behavior as inherently good right no no one should be going like this is how i this is how i do sex or this is who i have sex with and yeah. that's that's great in the eyes of god god thinks that this is really good well uh, there are there are specific circumstances in which it is but well i i suppose when it comes to like go forth and be fruitful and multiply and, and yeah. stuff like that like yeah i, I yeah. can see like the act of procreation uh in a means to like build the family of God and glorify God. Like, yeah, I get that. So that's another thing <laughs> is this is really interesting. And then we're getting, we're getting off on a tangent. We'll, yes, we we'll, we'll finish up are. here and get it. <laughs> so I'll have to find some examples for you, Jeremy. I've read some of it and um, Jeremy talks about it frequently in our private conversations, which is going to sound weird, but um, the early church doctors of like the Catholic church and like early, even like, um, heretical writers and stuff, they would discuss heaven as a pure state of orgasm (laughs) that, or like, like, um, like eating, like experiencing God was technically orgasmic. So like, it wasn't as if sex was, it was, it's a lesser good so that it's, it's a good that you can pervert through indulgence, like food, like when you eat good food, you're literally experiencing God, but you can eat too much of it and pervert it. So like when you're having sex, 
it's like an orgasm is an experience of God in like, like I'm talking about like, like medieval writers, like, like Aquinas literally wrote about it. And I don't really remember what this has to do with what we were talking about. No, no, I think, well, I mean, it's, I mean, taking, stretching that out further, it's like any, there there is, there is physical pleasure that is good in the eyes of God. Like they're like, like drinking, like alcohol, like drinking alcohol is not sinful per se. It's when you get, you become intoxicated and lose your judgment by means of alcohol that it's sinful. It's not sinful to eat food. It's sinful to eat too much and get fat. It's not sinful to have sex. It's sinful to have too much sex or perverted sex, like sex with whatever, you know, just whatever, like it's, they're all lesser goods. So to, to say that like experiencing the glory of God, seeing a beautiful, like I was up at sun at the sunrise this morning and I saw just this incredible sky. And yeah. I, you know, you, that's when you feel the glory of God. And I guess in the same way you could say that like experiencing an orgasm is kind of like that or, or eating, eating a delicious bit of food is like that, but yeah, it can be perverted and changed in, but I don't know if that necessarily the act in and of itself glorifies God in so much or, or as much it as depending it, on what it, how you, I, how you I, do it. I don't know. I would read it more as like, maybe isn't this, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. isn't this us experiencing uh, the glory of God, not necessarily glorifying him with it. Although maybe our joy, be. because so the only way you glorify are, God in a classical context is if you literally, the man ejaculates in the vagina and then a child is conceived. Like that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's the one, but anyway, let's keep reading. It's insanely um, specific. <laughs> no, I know. I know. It's funny. Um, uh, okay. So there's just a little bit left here. So let's, the final um, messages. Thing. Yeah. This is, this is just the sign off. There's a sign off at pretty much the end of every, at the end of every letter, um, or epistle. Um, I am going to butcher this name. Is it Tychicus? I think so. Okay. Uh, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Hang on. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. <laughs> Wait a second. What does it mean? What does it mean to you to do what is good? What is good? A good works, right? This is what, what, what we were just works? talking. What, is, what makes the works good? Well, I think uh, this is helping the needy, um, giving. Well, homes that was to my the question homeless. is, what makes helping the needy good? Well, I guess it's because that's what Jesus did. It's right? in accordance with God's will. Yeah. It's in accordance with what we are taught in 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 the ministry of Jesus and I guess before then too although you know this um like coming down and meeting people at their level and bringing them bringing them up with you I think is something that's somewhat unique to the to the ministry of Jesus. Yeah, you I would very much like you to come on Contradentiales to talk about like like the, like hardcore theological talk. You guys are going to beat me it, into the ground. It, no, 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 no. It's not it's not a competition. It's I'm not, not that an smart. argument. It's not a <laughs> No, but you you're you're familiar with scripture and like you you would know how to apply it. It would just be interesting. I try. But, um, I try. Yeah. It's um I'm still like I guess this is uh episode 27 of the uh, show and the arc of learn just 
reading the Bible every day, the yeah. arc of how much you learn and start to connect the dots is like, it's insane. If you just connect with the text every single day, mm-hmm. you will start to make those connections. You will start to um, realize things that you never realized before or understand things that you had difficulty understanding before. And it's just like a matter of immersing yourself in the scripture. I think it's really incredible. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a theological, like a, like a rational feature of that also that like understand, like having a really firm understanding of like what goodness means, what truth means, what evil means, what beauty means. Like when you, when you said you were experiencing the sun, the sunrise, it's, you are engaging with the ontological beauty of being that reveals truth to you aesthetically. That's the, the, the beauty is the, the most fundamental way in which people engage with God is that. So when you, when you experience some, when you see something beautiful, meaning that it is beautiful in that it exists or it is, you are literally experiencing God. Like that's what's happening. And like, those kind of conversations are what we, 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 we talk about scripture some, mm-hmm. but we have like the other side of the conversation. And I just thought it was very cool when you messaged me and we were like, Hey, talk about the Bible with me. And I was like, wow, I haven't done that in a while <laughs> to kind of give you. So, so I'd answer your question at the beginning. Um, now that, did you have any final thoughts uh, before I rant a little bit? I, uh, no, I think, I think that we yeah, that last we really off. dug. It's yeah, we so dug cute in that he was well wintering in Nicopolis to me. He's like, "Yes, I chose to winter there." <laughs> <laughs> and everybody, that. everybody that's around here says hello, and they send their love. <laughs> <laughs> love that. I love that they included it. The full letter. I love that. But um, just to tell you a little bit about my, um, I grew up extremely. Um, like I don't even know if it was non-denominational. Um was very very protestant kind of that you know like if you ask someone like oh what denomination are you and they're like oh i guess it's kind of baptist you're like oh okay so non-denominational it's like a very common but kind of general theology mm-hmm. um i grew up in a church i have always had taste in the male physique if that makes sense i never had like a, a gay awakening or anything i didn't um and more and more, it got more legalistic, I guess is the word. They would start, they started preaching more and more about like homos and things. And like, um, they never used that language. They were always pretty kind. And then they, they had this series of weeks upon weeks of like doctors would come in and explain how cells are too complicated to have evolved from anything and that God literally had to have designed them. And like, this whole, and I just got kind of bored of it. Yeah, and then my father passed, my grandparents passed, and I just kind of like wandered around, and I was like, I, "This isn't. It's this is not providing me with the in like the the spiritual and intellectual support I need." And um, I was working with Jeremy at the camera store we used to work at, and he, I think, the first thing he ever asked me was, "Does nothing exist?" <laughs> and I was like, "I don't remember what answer I gave, but just to summarize it, it's that nothing." doesn't exist because it's the lack lack of being so therefore it can't but whatever um and then he like started introducing me to like aquinas and stuff and like augustine um origin gregor of nyssa and things like the the kind of scholastic thinkers pre-scholastics mm-hmm. that are essentially extensions of like aristotle and stuff and it just like totally satiated my need for uh understanding and peace if that makes sense 
Absolutely. It was like, wow, okay, not all Christian theology is just about how this ant, this little ant species is so complicated that it it couldn't have evolved from level one. It's just like cool to like hear like actual moral arguments for things instead of just like this is why it's bad that gays want to marry each other. Like, I don't know. So I've recently within the past couple of years been diving back in. That's so interesting. I mean, I think that the more, the more academically minded people uh, of faith yeah. um, tend to develop complicated perspectives on complicated issues that mm-hmm. allow for more discernment and nuance than uh, than the mainline kind of evangelical, um, like you were saying, these doctors that would just come in and 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 just say, "Listen, I know." Like, Look, this guy found me. the rock that Moses split. You're like, "What are you talking about? Like, what are you?" Uh, that to me, I think, like, becomes disingenuous to anyone that thinks a little harder about things like this. Well, it's a, it's an attempt to reconcile biblical narrative and truth with the scientific method which you can't do that's not the point that's not that's a, that's an incorrect interpretation of both the purpose of scripture and the purpose of the scientific method absolutely and like it's it's you know it's kind of like a christians for so long where they were making moral arguments that were correct but then science kind of reared its ugly head in that context and started to disprove you can't even disprove biblical narrative using the scientific method really but like they'd say well how do you how can you prove that these people walked around and then christians (laughs) started to try to try to try to answer those questions using the same ideological framework that science was employing contemporary science was employing it's just not it's not productive. It's a, so it's a waste of breath. Yeah. It, it yes, doesn't I feel just like totally to don't it. care. Like I don't <laughs> care. I don't care if the creation story is literal. I don't care. It just, it's, it's, it's irrelevant to the significance of scripture. I don't care. Yeah. That's, and that was what, that was what especially Aquinas offered was he was, he just writes forever about it. What, what it means to be good, what it means to be true, what, it's, and just things like that. And it's just like, I, I, that's literally the goal of the podcast I do with Jeremy is to introduce people to basic metaphysical concepts that have been lost to time, essentially. Or that you have been put on the back burner in, in the yes. name of like uh, trying to l- logically argue your way out of, um, con- you know, contradictions between the gospels or something like that. It's yeah, like, like this a, is I would, important. I would, um, especially as a trans person, how I'm like a gay person, like we, we kind of exist in a different space, but, um, I would really recommend you listen to the sex extravaganza episode, the Thanksgiving <laughs> sex extravaganza. It was, we literally on the 10th, I think that we ended the, that was the 11th episode. I think that, Oh my God, that was six months ago. <laughs> Good Lord. But, um, we, we were like, wow, we should talk about sexuality next time. So, I think Anne-Marie made a charcuterie board and we just talked about sexual, like we ended up, we were just like screaming, laughing about how lesbians are in a perpetual state of foreplay. And like, it was just like, it was very, (laughs) it's very, but it's again, we we, we were just like, we were articulating classical interpretations of sexuality and like the morality and sexual behavior and stuff. And it was, 
Yeah, just based on kind of what we talked about, you might. Yeah, I think you'd enjoy that. I think I'll have to check it out. And if that sounds interesting <laughs> to anyone else, it then, was um, really um, provocative. I think is the word. But I, from what I've heard of your show, it, it, it provocative <laughs> is the right word. I think that that's true. But it's it's intelligent. Look, I mean, it's not just. It's not like being provocative for the sake of being provocative. I think that there's um, there's definitely um, an effort to. Uh, to approach things from an original, intelligent, complicated uh, worldview, uh, one that doesn't um, overvalue, um, one that doesn't overvalue science as a concept, which is what our society, I think, does inevitably yes, now. Totally. Um, and yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's good work. I I don't always agree with what I hear on your show, and I'll be completely honest about that. But I, I think that you you guys are really smart. And, um, and yeah, I think I'd like to come on. I think it would be, um, that'd be fun. I think it'd be has fun. anybody, um, have you, I was thinking about it and like, has your podcast and your presence online, um, quote unquote brought anybody around to like scripture or anything like that? Yeah. Have yeah. I mean, I get, I get messages almost every week from people that tell me that they haven't been engaging with faith. They haven't been, um, they they they're trying to they're trying prayer again or they're they're reading the Bible again. They like they're they're not sure how they feel about it right now, but they're trying. It, it's not like um, I've I've had anyone tell me like I you know I was a Satanist six months ago and now I love Jesus. <laughs> Thank you so much. But it's it is a lot. I mean I hear that a lot and I think it's a beautiful thing. I mean I never really intended for this to be like a missioning tool necessarily for me. It was like a a project. No, I think that speaking truth and engaging scripture is always. Is always, I, I, I'm not going to say intentionally missioning, but there's a, there's a level of evangelism that goes on in this show, though, because I because I speak so ecstatically about my love for Jesus. That is <laughs> that's what it's all about to me. Uh, so I think people hear that sometimes, and they also hear like you know what what trans regret Snoopy like what is that this person's voice is <laughs> no, like kind is, of weird and like spectacular <laughs> are they gay or like what's going on with this person like and i i i intentionally shield a lot of personal details about myself because ultimately like it does it doesn't really matter who tr- who the who the person behind the the curtain is um but the show itself has just been an absolute joy i love I love doing this, and I love having conversations like this with people yep. like you. Um, this was uh, this was really cool. So, yeah, I'm, thank you uh, so much. I am going to go. I think I'm going to walk my dog and smoke a tobacco pipe. Oh, that sounds delightful. <laughs> <laughs> but well, yes, I'll um, <laughs> I'll send you the thing. We'll okay. talk soon. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna read my little poem here. I do a poem at the end of every episode. Oh, so. yes, that's right. If you don't mind sitting I've, with me, I've it listened. Should, yeah, should no, just be I'm, about a minute. I'm or two. standing, but I'm here. Okay. Um, this is uh, by Richard Brodigan uh, from his book Revenge of the Lawn. It's called A Complete History of Germany and Japan. A few years ago. World War II, I lived in a motel next to a swift packing plant, which is a nice way of saying slaughterhouse. They killed pigs there hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, until spring became summer, and summer became fall by cutting their throats, after which would follow a squealing lament equal to an opera being run through a garbage disposal. Somehow, I thought that killing all those pigs had something to do with winning the war. I guess that was because everything else did. For the first week or two that we lived in the motel, it really bothered me. All that screaming was hard to take. But then I grew used to it, and it became like any other sound, a bird singing in a tree 
or the noon whistle, or the radio, or trucks driving by, or human voices, or being called for dinner, etc. You can play after dinner. Whenever the pigs weren't screaming, the silence sounded as if a machine had broken down. Thanks, everybody. Because-